Hey there, friends, and welcome to episode 224 of Just the Zoo of Us. This week, I got to go for an actual deep dive with a deep sea biologist who's here to review an animal that just might change the way you think about the creatures of the abyss. We discuss what it's like to be among the first humans to ever see a species, life in the trenches, like the actual Mariana Trench, freedom from beauty norms and justice for the blobfish, slurping up meat-flavored jelly beans off the ocean floor, and the adorable side of the Hadal Zone. Just the Zoo of Us presents Ethereal Snailfish with Dr. Tom Lindley. I'm here with Just the Zoo of Us, your favorite animal review podcast. I'm so excited to be bringing you a brand new friend for this week. This is Dr. Tom Lindley. Say hi, Tom. Hi, everyone. I'm so excited to talk to you. Little starstruck because we have a deep sea icon among us today. This is very exciting to talk about a really cool, very mysterious creature from the darkest depths of the ocean, to quote the Zoo Books commercial that I know for heart for some reason. But before we talk about our deep sea friend, let's talk about you. You have probably one of the most fascinating careers that I think, like, in the world. This is just the sort of thing that, like, endlessly fascinates me. It's like being an astronaut on Earth. Could you introduce us for our friends listening to what it is that you do in the deep sea? Okay. I'm uh, Dr. Tom Lindley. I'm the curator of fishes at the Museum of New Zealand, Te Papa Tongaruera. And uh, yeah, I like to explore the deep sea and not to be snobbish, but like the the really deep sea, (laughs) the really, really deep bits, because there's a lot of it. We decide that the deep sea kicks in at about 200 meters because that is kind of the edge of our countries. And that's kind of the edge of the bits that we lay claim to and the bits that we can easily get to. So it starts at 200 meters and it goes down to almost 11,000 in some places. So it's like most of the planet. So it's hard to specialize in that (laughs) because there's a lot going on. Is this past the point where it gets dark in the ocean? At what point does it get dark? It would be dark to us, certainly. But if you have special magic fish eyes or a few other critters with some amazing eyes down there, light gets to maybe 2,000 meters deep in some of the clearer water places. And that's where you get all the stuff that people associate with the deep sea, you know, the toothy, glowy, sparkly things. All the spooky guys. Yeah, all the spooky guys. But <laughs> most of the spooky guys are tiny. They're really trying to hide that from you. All the all the sort of sensationalist articles about how horrible <laughs> this fish looks like. It's, it's the size of the palm of your hand. Like, it's actually cute. <laughs> you know when something's small but fierce looking? That seems like helpful yeah. context. They shouldn't be leaving that out, But it I gets think. the clicks. It gets the clicks. There's some bigger stuff down there, but it's mainly little twinkly things and the, the big pointy teeth get almost cute at that. I feel like when you see a picture of like, a viper fish or something like that next to it there should be a little thing that's like don't freak out yeah it's okay banana for scale but then it's it's <laughs> it's about the size of a banana that's a big one <laughs> it sucks when the, like it's so deep that there's nothing around to give you a sense of scale so you have no idea this thing could be like seven feet long yes <laughs> you wouldn't know 
And that's when they get crafty. That's what's interesting. So this whole sort of zone where you've got a little bit of downwelling light and things make their own light and it's all it's all these guys that we're talking about. Because you make the light yourself and you are sort of perceived by others, other things see you, you can lie, you can manipulate things. You can, <laughs> you can be small and you can appear big. You can be big and appear small. So it's all like deception and subterfuge in that area. You're just like, oh, I'm just a, a nice little tasty snack. And then it's the lure on an anglerfish. Or, hey, I'm a big, huge, scary thing and it's a little copepod that's just made a big cloud around itself it's deception and subterfuge in that layer it's funny because like terrestrial animals do that too just so differently you know like inflating themselves to seem bigger or like using eye spots to look like a larger creature than they are like i guess i didn't realize that like animals so deep under the water are doing the same thing just using what they have available yeah and the fact they can manipulate the light as well they can manipulate sort of the source and the object you're looking at um they can get really tricky the thing that a lot of them do is counter illumination so they have light up bellies basically light up tummies so with that tiny bit of light that's downwelling down from the surface you could see a silhouette you could see their outline if you had really sensitive eyes so they perfectly match that downwelling light and their shadow disappears but then that means they could create a false shadow Mm. they could create the shadow of a different animal (gasps) to try and trick things no can we go on a tangent about cookie cutter sharks now, this is a pro cookie cutter shark space. We love our chompy guys. They are they are certainly chompy guys. So they have this collar around their neck. They have this dark band around their neck. And we think that they light up their underside, but then they leave this collar. So they look like a much smaller fish. And then a predatory fish will come charging in from underneath thinking, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to nom down on this little snack. And as they come past, the cookie cutter does this weird little backflip. This is going to sound weird, but it has really big lips for a shark. (laughs) (laughs) So it kind of slurps on, sucks on like a little suction cup. Slay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Real pouty lips. (laughs) Um, And then does this little spin. And it uses the, the predator's momentum as it goes past to do this little spin and take that little cookie cutter plug out of the tissue. And they hang around in gangs. So they look like a shoal of fish. It's an Uno reverse. It is. Well... Hold on. I'm not the one being preyed upon, actually. Guess again. Yeah. It's you. <laughs> Surprises. <laughs> now I remember Christian telling me this during our cookie cutter shark episode, because I remember being like, sharks already have so much going for them. And now they're also using like espionage and deception and trickery. How do you also get like, what is it like being God's favorite? I guess is what I'm wondering. Like <laughs> Being fully equipped, having everything you need. In the terms of like, you know, when animals are living deep in the water, a lot of times what they do is they create their own light. But if you can't make your own light, store-bought is fine, which is what humans have to do. We got to bring our own light. We can't make our own. So when we go down into the depths of the water to explore, we got to go with remote operated vehicles or submarines or things like that, which my understanding is this is something that you work on, which I think is like one of the coolest things in the world, maybe one of the most exciting like jobs a person could have. And for people who are listening who are like, that sounds like the coolest thing I've ever heard of. Could you give us a little peek into like what sort of a day in the life is like working on one of these like deep sea research vessels? Okay, it's massively varied. So our team was successful because we went for landers or pop-up vehicles. And that was what our sort of lab specialized in. So once you lower something down and you're going, you know, 8,000 meters, the physics gets weird. Like there is probably only a couple of vessels, a couple of ships in the world that could actually lower something down to those kind of depths. And it's dangerous and it takes a long time. It's vulnerable. So what our gear does is we just let it go. We just let it go from the surface. It free falls all the way down. 
even at sort of as fast as it can go falling down, it can still take four hours to reach the bottom. That's how deep some of these places are. It'll get there. It'll do a little pre-programmed task that we've asked it to do. And then when we want it to come back up, we will send a code through the water as a pulse of sound. It sounds like an old modem, that old sort of dial-up. Oh, I'm definitely going to have to drop a soundbite in because probably a lot of kids listening do not know what that sounds like, but (laughs) that is a core memory. (laughs) It is, it is. Yeah, that, (laughs) that through the water column. And then it drops some weight, floats back up to the surface and we get to pick it up. And this is the thing they never teach you about in science school. I get to throw a grappling hook and I'm quite good at throwing a grappling hook. Like, that's not the that's not the idea of a scientist. This is Batman behavior. Yeah, it's all in the line management. You know, <laughs> you, you focus on throwing the grappling hook, but actually it's all about the line. So yeah, I can throw a grappling hook. I bring this thing on board. And this is the moment that's really humbling for me because there's a scary bit with like, as our equipment worked, you know, we're under these incredible forces. And then I'll pop out a memory card. And we don't know yet what we've seen. We know we've sent a camera to a place that no human has ever seen before. So pop that into the laptop, scroll down to where it gets exciting. And there it is. I'm looking at something no one has seen before. And then, and then on top of that, something beautiful swims into shot. And that is it. I'm the first human being to see that animal. And that is, that's why I get up in the morning. That's fantastic. So you mentioned that like, you don't know what's on the pictures until you see them. Is it just like a little robot that's going around trying to like take pictures, like hope something's in this? <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a lot of that. Most of our images are probably images of nothing because it's a little bit sparse down there. It's a little bit spread out. So our gear doesn't actually move. It sets up shop. It just lands where it is. But we have a little incentive. So what we tend to do is we tend to use bait. So we put a nice stinky bit of mackerel that I've left out in the sun on a bait arm in front of the camera. And certainly on the abyssal plains, on the big open plains that cover most of our planet, there's a lot of scavengers that are very good at finding things that smell delicious to them. And so they come along, they get a free meal, we get a picture of them, nobody gets hurt. Tradesies. Yeah, tradesies, that's it, that's it. We pay them. Everyone wins. Yeah, (laughs) and that's it. So we get nice sort of feeding aggregations and there's all sorts you can learn from that. It's similar to some of the scavenger studies on say the Serengeti, like you'll get the opportunists who turn up really quickly and then you'll get larger predators that come and sort of steal the carcass. And then you might even get predators of the other scavengers that aren't interested in the carcass at all. They know that it's going to attract scavengers and that's what they're there to eat. Oh, I see. They're they're off in the rafters like, mm, I'm just waiting for somebody to come by. And then I'm it's it's Uno reverses all the way down. It is. It's a tricky area. It's a tricky area of the deep sea. Lots of deception. Have y'all come across whale falls? I just have to ask because whale falls are my favorite thing in the universe. Oh. And I love I will talk about them endlessly. They, they're amazing. I we sent down a whale bone once. We wanted to actually film the colonization. We wanted to film the animals sort of settling on it. We were interested in the bone-eating worms, the zombie worms or the snot worms. Those are all great names. Yeah. Every single thing you said was great. <laughs> oh, there's some amazing names in the deep sea. Yeah, some stuff has some really good ones. <laughs> so yeah, we, we experimented with that for a while. I have not found one directly. It's quite rare. It's quite an unusual thing to find. But the progression of that as a habitat and that localized, because it's quite, it's there's not much food down there. So a bonanza like that will create a reef, essentially, will change the whole environment for quite an area. So all these scavengers that can go for half a year without eating suddenly have this buffet. 
And uh, I think they'll put on loads of weight and they'll try and mature really quickly. It'd be a great time to breed. It, it's a great place for a date, actually, is a whale fall because <laughs> all of your potential uh, partners will have followed the same scent. They'll be well fed. Yeah, maybe it's a, a good spot for some romance with deep sea fish. So where did you two meet? <laughs> oh, you know, there was this dead whale. <laughs> Oh, it stank so good. And, and I, as I gazed across the blubber, you know, our eyes met. What if there was like a Hallmark Christmas movie where like a couple has like a meet cute at a whale fall? It's like a couple of isopods. But the like, it's a Christmas movie because it's like marine snow oh. falling around them where it's like, oh, it's beautiful snow, but it's also like poop and dead stuff. You know what? I think they don't know that. I think they're just, I think they've got like a manna from heaven thing. I was like, food just comes from the sky. And it's like, don't think about it. Like, there'll be some deep sea, like actual deep sea animal scientist who's just like, I've just figured out what this stuff is. We, we've been eating this for ages. <laughs> like, listen, I'm not here to ask questions. Okay. What's going on? That's topside problems. That's none of my business. Yeah. It decides to keep it secret. I don't know or care where this stuff comes from. <laughs> Although, I don't know. I mean, they have different values. They probably wouldn't care. They'd be like, oh, poop and dead stuff. That sounds great, actually. I have no hangups about that. I'm an isopod. Yeah, exactly. What else am I going to eat? The silt? No. <laughs> <laughs> Take what I can get. And during your time researching all of these amazing, bizarre, otherworldly creatures that live in this place so foreign to the human eye, as I have said before on this podcast, really none of our business, like mm -hmm. not meant for human eyes at all, was never meant to like enter the field of view of a human being. And yet people like you are bringing stuff like that up to our eyes and to our knowledge. And during this time, your work has revealed some new creatures that we otherwise didn't know about, including the, the fish that we're talking about today. For people who are listening and are like, what is a snailfish? Could you introduce us to what a snailfish is? Yeah, sure. So they are the best animals and they are magic and wonderful and I'm not biased at all. That was a very strong intro. Yeah, but... There we go. There's Set my... that bar nice and high. <laughs> There's my, my totally neutral scientific stance on it. So they're an amazing group of fishes. That's to start off with that weird name, why snailfish? They're pectoral fins, which are like the little leggy fins, the fins underneath a fish. They have fused into this little suction cup oh. that lets them hold on to things. And so you actually find them right up in the intertidal in the rock pools. And they use this little suction cup to hang on in the current. So they might hang on to say a, a big piece of kelp and they tend to curl their body around probably to reduce drag. So they look like a little curled up snail. Oh, I see it. Yeah. These family of fishes, you can find them in a couple of centimeters deep in a rock pool and you can find them in the deepest places on earth. And they go, as far as we can tell, they go deeper than any other fish. They are winning at it. And they've had this interesting history that has led them to these, these sort of super deep places because they're really good at being in cold areas. There's loads of them, particularly in the Antarctic, and they sort of radiated into lots of different species down there. But something about being good at coping with the cold seems to make you good at coping with going deep. And one of the other advantages is that they skipped the middle. So usually we, we find most of these hadal snailfishes. So hadal is the, the deepest zone in the ocean. It's these big cracks that go down right down to sort of uh, 11,000 meters. And they tend to be the only fish we find in there. And I think part of that is that all around that is these big open abyssal plains where there's very little food. 
And even though they're right next door to each other, they're two very different environments. So the fish that are good at living on those plains, the scavengers I mentioned earlier that will look for big dead things over wide areas, that's not going to work in a crack in the ocean. So they're actually not very good at making that last step. Whereas these cold adapted snailfish went right down into the trenches and set up shop there deeper than every other fish. They've got the place to themselves. They've got plenty of food. But it's like an inverted island because once they adapted to go that deep, they can't hop up anymore. They can't get to the other trenches. Ah. So each trench has one, sometimes up to three endemic species in it. So species that are only found in that trench. And that's what's really wow. exciting because they've done it over and over again. We, we keep going to these trenches and more often than not, in there is this cute little pink fish. <laughs> you didn't say that they were cute and pink. They are adorable. I love a, a kawaii <laughs> fish. No, no, very much so. Big eyes. I've kind of got a wrinkly sort of naked mole rat kind of feel to them, but I think they're cuter. These sort of smiling looking mouths. And they're also quite social, quite gregarious. Because they're not so food limited, they form these big groups and they sort of seem to nuzzle up against each other when they're feeding. And they are adorable. So if, to break away the, the deep sea fish mold, 200 meters to a couple of thousand meters. That's the scary pointy ones, but they're actually tiny. Then for maybe 3,000 to 6,000, 7,000 meters, big dumb looking things in grays and browns. <laughs> Just The reason nobody talks about them is that they're not the scary monster that everyone hopes they are. They're just Big brown and gray things that are eking by on very just little guys. Just, guy, just guys hanging just out. Guys. Just guys being guys. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then you go down into these trenches and everything gets adorable. We've looped back around. You loop all the way back around into cute. It's like you horseshoe around where you have to get so terrifying yeah. that you come back around to being cute again. Like the flares are back. You mentioned that these snailfish have their pectoral fins are fused together into something like a suction cup. This reminds me, years ago, we did an episode with um, a researcher named Kelly Diamond who told us about these gobies yes. that have a suction cup on their, like you said, like the fused pectoral fins makes a suction cup and they suction up waterfalls. Yes. Is there any relation here? No. They've come up with the same idea again. Uh, there's clingfishes as well. No way. Yeah. <laughs> It turns out little <laughs> suction cup legs work. <laughs> so a few a few critters have done it. Sometimes in high flow areas, sometimes it's a way of, of saving energy. It's still present in the really deep snailfish, or at least it's present in, in the most dominant groups. But it seems to be, it's lost a lot of muscle. It's not really grabbing on because there's not much current down there. But they, they still have them. So they seem to be serving a purpose down there. It seems like such a drastic adaptation to have like both arrived at just on their own. That yeah. is so interesting. There's some wild convergent evolution in these. And each one is carrying their history. So it might not actually be that useful down in a, a super deep sea trench. But you came from the Antarctic and that's what you sort of brought with you as one of your traits. And it hasn't disappeared yet. I've heard so many times like in evolution, how a lot of times if something's like not hurting you, it's like you might as well keep it. Like, yeah. I don't know, just keep uh, it. It's fine. Unless you're punished for it. Okay, actually, going back to some of the big, boring, brown looking fish in the, the abyssal plains, we went to an area where maybe one in five were just a brilliant white, just beautiful, beautiful white. And we have a little theory that it's a mutation that knocked out the pigments, similar to like you see in cave species, cave fish. Mm. But because no one can see each other, it wasn't punished. 
but it also wasn't rewarded. It didn't provide a benefit and it didn't provide a punishment. So it just it just exists in the population. So you're like, that's fine. Don't don't worry about it. Yeah, like you don't see each other. You know, why go through the trouble? <laughs> no one down here can see each other. It's no big deal. We can look like whatever we want. How liberating. Maybe we've been a bit harsh saying it's all about deception, but maybe maybe it's about, you know, it's inside that counts and the deep sea is actually about personality. <laughs> I love that they're they're afforded the anonymity of like no one being able to see each other. So it's like, I'm going to look this way for me. Yeah. I'm going to yeah. look the way I want to. It's for me. It's not about you. Freed of beauty norms. Truly freed of beauty norms down there <laughs> because ain't no beauty norms happening down in the deep ocean. Y you mentioned that uh, once you get deep enough, the creatures get kind of like cute and pink. It reminds me of the blobfish. Yes. Which, justice for the blobfish, they don't look like what you think they look no, like. <laughs> they don't. They don't. Terrible, terrible things happen to that one. Actually, I, I, I know the people who took that iconic picture that went viral. No. Yeah, it's a kiwi. That's crazy. The, Mr. Blobby the blobfish is a kiwi. It was the Norfans expedition off New Zealand a couple of decades ago now. But that iconic blobfish image, yeah, he's a kiwi. Does the sort of blobfish PR nightmare haunt them or are they like, yeah? Luckily, they're spared of it. Um, but us as deep sea biologists, we're kind of lumbered with it. So I I really like seeing these animals in the right context. I like seeing them in their natural environment. There's things that we can only learn from having specimens. But if you really want to visualize what they're like, you need to send cameras down there and you need to see them, how they're living and how they're meant to look. Because as you said, the blobfish looks nothing like that. And the analogy I use is... If you fired me out of an airlock in space, dragged me across the surface of the moon, and then put me in five times my normal gravity, and then took a picture and called me ugly, <laughs> I think that's on you. I think that's on you. <laughs> that's user error, I think. Yeah. yeah. It's like, too right I look ugly. You've done terrible things to me. <laughs> I promise this is going to be my last off-topic comment, but I have the Build-A-Bear blobfish. Yes. Because... Christian got one for me. I said him like he ordered it for me, and its name is Blob Ross. <gasps> no. Unfortunately, tragically, it is the pink deflated blobfish, but he is my prized possession. Is the Build a Bear blobfish as, as a character and as a sort of face for Deep Sea, especially because it's not horrific. It's kind of it's ugly, but it's ugly cute. No, I don't mind the blob, <laughs> blobfish as an ambassador, even if it's just for the gotcha of actually they don't look like that. I'm a boring scientist spoiling all the fun. I mean, if you love to be a contrarian like me, that's great. I just It's like a built-in correction opportunity at all times. I love it. How long do you draw out your actually? Because <laughs> that's usually a good sign. How long is the why? It always has to be preceded by, well... Yeah, just long vowel sounds. I like the tut at the start. I might have to start doing that. That's crucial. That's an important component of it. Any proper well actually has to include a little... Yeah, they've got to know it's coming. Which is a devastating sound to include on the podcast. I, I usually edit that sound out, but it is important for what we're talking about. And it's meant to be annoying. Hey there, we're going to take a quick break to hear from a couple of our friends on the Maximum Fun Network. When we get back, we are getting into our ratings for ethereal snailfish. So stick around. From the twisted minds that brought you the Adventure Zone, Balance and Amnesty and Graduation and Ethersea and Steeplechase and Ultra Space, and all the other ones. The McElroy brothers and dad are proud to reveal a bold vision for the future of actual play podcasting. It's, um, it's called The Adventure Zone versus Dracula. Yeah, we're gonna kill Dracula's ass. Ah! We're gonna, well, we're gonna attempt, we haven't recorded all of it yet. We will attempt to kill Dracula's ah! ass. 
The Avengers of versus Dracula. Yes, a season I will be running uh, using the D&D 5th edition uh, rule set. And there's two episodes out for you to listen to right now. We hope you will join us. Same bat time, same bat channel. For and bats. I see what you did there. Have you ever wanted to know the sad lore behind Chuck E. Cheese's love of birthday parties? Or my Saturday mornings are reserved for cartoons? Or have you wanted to know how beloved virtual pet site Neopets fell into the hands of Scientologists? Or how a former Mattel employee managed to grow Sega into a video game powerhouse? Join us, hosts Austin and Brenda, and learn all of these things and more at Secret Histories of Nerd Mysteries, now on Maximum Fun. You have described this fish to me as the ethereal snailfish. Yes. What's ethereal about the snailfish? It looks kind of like the ghost of Christmas past. It's long flowing, sort of ghostly looking because it's semi-translucent. The light kind of passes through it. Mm. It's just, it's, it's beautiful. Well, I set the scenes, how we came across it and why, why we only called it that. And we can't give it a proper scientific name. Please. Because the fun thing is we don't know what it is. <laughs> we know it's a snailfish. Oh, it's just a guy. It's just a guy. It's just a guy down there. So this was back in 2014. I think it was me and my boss then, uh, Professor Alan Jameson, who's now with the Mindaroo uh, UWA Deep Sea Center. Uh, we were working with Schmidt Ocean Institute and we were out on the Mariana Trench. Very, very exciting. That's the big one. It's the big one. That's like the trench. It's the one my parents know. If you know a trench, it's <laughs> yeah, that one. Yeah, so we did it. We did, We went to the big one. And we heard reports of maybe a video catching a glimpse of a snailfish down there. So we were confident that there was a snailfish down there. Uh, and we sent our vehicles down and we got loads of this amazing footage of what we then went on to to give a proper scientific name for uh, as the Mariana snailfish. And at the time, that was the world's deepest living fish. And that was all exciting. Loads of high fives, like, woo, we did it. And back to what it feels like on one of these expeditions, it was 3 a.m. We'd had a really long day. It is just me, Alan, and a marine engineer uh, sort of wrapping things up for the day, getting everything backed up, getting ready for another full day tomorrow. And the engineer is watching some coring tubes that have been pushed into the, that mucky sediment that's on the bottom. So he has a camera on it, but all it's meant to do is film these tubes going into the mud to make sure they go into the mud properly. Everyone was just chilling out and this thing just swims into shot. And he sort of ro rolls back on his chair and is all sort of nonchalant because he's like, you, you guys like these fish, check out this one. <laughs> and we lose our minds and we're banging on cabin doors and waking people up because it's... <laughs> It shouldn't be this deep. And this magical thing has just swum into shot with these huge flowing cape-like fins. It just looks incredibly delicate and incredibly fragile. It was the footage that was filmed. It's pretty easy to find. It's the footage that was filmed and put onto Blue Planet 2. So the ethereal snailfish is on that second episode, the deep sea episode and that. And it's just, it's just so beautiful. And it's so fragile and delicate and goes against everything that people associate with deep sea fish. It is delicate and gentle and really quite beautiful to look at and not these horrible toothy things that only look like that to upset us, only look like that for some, some horror reason. It was just an amazing experience and it really sort of humbled us. And you coming back to the technology and, and how we do what we do. You know, we have sapphire glass windows inches thick. We have super duplex stainless steel, again, almost inches thick. These things are, are difficult to carry. And we're fighting that pressure. We're fighting the environment to get a glimpse of, as you said, where humans maybe aren't meant to go. We're so far from our world that it's difficult for us to exist there. 
And then this delicate, fragile thing comes into shot that's harmonizing with that environment and is just existing with it. And it just drives home that this is such a different world and a different animal adapted to different things. Because if you, if you could speak to that animal and describe what we live in, we would be the extremophiles. We would be the creatures. How on earth do you live like that? You can dry out? I didn't even know that was possible. <laughs> <laughs> you can die of thirst. Because life started down there. So like we're farther removed than they are. Like we're the weird ones yeah. up on the land. 54% of the Earth's surface is deep sea. So when we say it's a blue planet, it's actually a deep sea planet. It's actually pitch black, pitch black planet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. High, high pressure. And there's nothing to say that that's any weirder than hauling yourself up onto the rocks and then having to worry about drying out. We really took the difficult route. We're, we're playing on expert mode, really. We had to bump up the difficulty for ourselves. <laughs> we did. But also, like, you mentioned, like, immense amounts of pressure, what seems to us like a very, like, hostile environment. But you know what else is beautiful and forged under immense amount of pressure? Diamonds. There it is. So <laughs> that's just our beautiful little diamond of the ocean. But they're not constricted by our beauty norms as well. So truly free, a truly beautiful diamond, free of our, of our confines. <laughs> we're, we're going deep on this. We're going sort of way beyond biology. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I like to infuse a little poetry. Yeah. I like to get a little poetic. There's, there's poetry in nature. You've you got to find it there. To jump off the, off the back of that, a thing I find really humbling is when most of the adaptations these animals have to cope with that pressure are actually molecular. Like the actual atoms and molecules that make up their bodies are different from ours to cope with that pressure. And so when we do bring up samples of these animals, they disappear. They melt away. I have to work really, really quickly to get my samples because the molecules that make them up fall apart. Oh, wow. And that is so incredibly humbling that we can't share a space. We can't exist in the same place at the same time because our bodies are so different. And that's just, ah, right. that's so exciting. And both being like on the same planet yes. and feeling like our existences are so far removed from each other that we can't even like physically dwell in the same place. And yet we share a planet. Yeah. And if we're going hard on the philosophy thing, if we if we have a like single point origin of life, if life sort of radiated from one single event, they're our family. We are directly related. It goes back a long way. It's our cousin. Yeah. But like everything on the planet Earth that's alive is one big family. And that's, I don't know, you look at things differently. Then. And they'd be closer to us than like plants or funguses or stuff. Yeah. So like in the sort of whole entire kingdom of life, I mean, they're like, they're like our siblings. They're closer to us than a shark. That's wild. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I hate that. I hate that so much. <laughs> if this is your first time ever listening to this podcast, what we do is we rate animals out of 10 in different categories. The first of which is effectiveness. This is things like built into the animal's body, things about them that let them do a good job of the things that they're trying to do, like not be crushed by the crushing pressure of the ocean. So what do you give the ethereal snailfish out of 10 for effectiveness? I think because they're going beyond where any other fish seems to be able to go. I think that's, I mean, the whole scoring thing is, is sort of, <laughs> it's flawed when I'm talking about my favorite. I'm not an impartial judge here. <laughs> um, but I think considering they go where no other fish can go, that's got to be a high score on the effectiveness. I'm going to allow some wiggle room for like, if we find a fish living on the surface of the sun. So I'm going to go nine <laughs> out of 10, just, just until we find the sunfish, the solar sunfish. 
not the sunfish, not the mola mola, the big goofy guy, not that one, an actual fish on the sun, which <laughs> that would create way more questions than it would answer. But I, I will be here for it. Yeah, I'm not clocking off early that day. You mentioned that they live in an area that is like so incredibly deep that, you know, no other fish can live there. And they also don't look like what we would expect a fish in this sort of area to look like. As you mentioned, they they look very delicate and very gentle. And what they look like is like a wedding gown almost. Yes. In water flowing. Yeah. Is that an adaptation to their environment? Definitely. Definitely. So they've they've reduced their hard body parts because it's hard to build hard body parts under that pressure things tend to dissolve it's actually hard to mineralize things so they've reduced it down to the places that you need it which is basically just their teeth because soft teeth have never worked hard to crunch yeah so <laughs> the rest is quite reduced and quite flexible they're fairly well muscled there's certainly things with less musculature but it's really low density muscle so a lot of their body is encased in this gel and that's what sort of less lets the light pass through them and so they're pretty much neutrally buoyant. They're, they're really harmonized with the environment. They're a similar sort of density to their environment. And their movements are very deliberate. Uh, certainly with the ethereal, it's got those long fins it's got to contend with. So it, it makes these very graceful dancer-like movements, which I think really adds to the effect. <sighs> because they've lost their pelvic fins, those little under, under leggy fins, to being a sucking disc, the pectoral so the arm fins of a fish theirs has to do a double function so it has a big flowing sort of pectoral fin which is the the normal sort of flappy fins for movement and it, they've split it into two sections they've split it into two lobes and the lower lobe works like the old pectoral fin so it kind of hangs under as a separate thing and in these guys the fin rays that support the fin are free so they come out of the of the fin membrane and they look like little cat's whiskers and they're covered in taste buds. <laughs> so as they're going along the, the ocean bottom, they're kind of tickling the seabed with these things and uh, getting a taste for things. I'm very glad that we don't share that adaptation. Can you imagine having to like taste everywhere that you walk? <laughs> uh, this is funny, but I have pondered this for, for a long period. And I, <laughs> I think it's on us again. I think because we can only taste what's in our mouth, we associate the sense of taste with ingesting something. Mm. Whereas if we could taste just by touching something and you're not contaminating your body with it, I think we'd use it far more as a sense. And if you're living in water, that that works. Maybe we'd be a little less like repulsed by bad tastes. Exactly. Maybe a bad taste would just be like, oh, an interesting thing. <laughs> I'm going to move away from this. Like a bad smell. <laughs> Nobody likes a bad smell, but it's uh it's not as it's not as bad as a bad taste. It's funny that the way that you kind of described how their pelvic fins work, it feels like they had to like reverse engineer what they had to begin with. No, that's exactly what's happening. That's like, hey, we got this sucking disc. Oh, no, we used this to build it. <laughs> we we oh, needed shoot. that too. Oh, we did need that. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all wobbly now. It's, oh, man. It's fine if it's a smooth surface I can suck onto, but what do I do the rest of the time? <laughs> now... Being this deep, like you mentioned, so deep that, you know, other fish can't live here, it kind of has the benefit of being outside of the range of things that would otherwise want to eat them. Do they have to be afraid of anything down there? They don't seem to be. We haven't seen anything that looks like a predator. Once they come a little bit shallower, there are things that might eat them uh, when they start interacting with other fish. So I think they're sort of hiding away down here. And I think that might be part of their sort of gregarious social looking behavior that we see. I think they've gone like the quagga. 
I think they've, they've got no predators, so they're kind of confident little things down there. <laughs> the the quagga, like the extinct, is it a horse? Oh, did I get did I get that wrong? What's that little guy in Australia that's like on an island with no predators and they pose for selfies? Oh, the quagga. quagga. Oh, sorry. There you go. The quagga is the horse. You're right. Because I was about to be like, it didn't work out great for them. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Those those little guys that are totally sort of predator free and get really confident with it. Yeah, we see this like with like the dodo also yeah. like once again didn't work out great for them, but like when an animal like lives in a place that's isolated from any predators, eventually they get to the point where they're like what am I afraid of? Yeah. Nothing. Who's stepping to me? Nobody. Oh, there's more philosophy there. There's more things to aspire to. <laughs> Have the confidence of living without predation. And adapt to environments so hostile that your haters can't survive oh. there. Oh, are we talking about communities? Are we talking about a sense of community? Oh, no, we're, we're way off biology now. <laughs> <laughs> but find your people, exist without your predators, become confident. <laughs> and since you mentioned their gregarious behavior, this brings up our second category that we rate animals on out of 10. This is ingenuity, behaviors, things the animal's doing, things that they do to like let them solve problems that they face or, you know, interact with each other in ways that help them thrive. What do you give the ethereal snailfish out of 10 for ingenuity? We don't know a lot about its behavior because we only get glimpses of it. But if we're looking at the other snailfish and what we've sort of learned to the group as a whole, I'm gonna I'm gonna give a more humble score here because <laughs> thanks to their effectiveness, they don't have to be that ingenious because they got the place to themselves. Uh, so I'm gonna give them a, a six for this. No thoughts. Heads completely empty. Yeah, or just kind of kind of quite zen maybe. As far as fish go and certainly deep sea fish, they're they're on the smarter end of things. They probably have some form of parental care. <gasps> yeah. Really? Yeah, um, that's cool. There's some really weird examples in the whole sort of family that the snailfish come from. Uh, so there's right up to parasitism. There's these ones that use that little suction cup to ride the back of a giant king crab and they lay their eggs actually inside the crab shell. And this is a massively dated reference, but all I can think about is the end of Wild Wild West with the my enormous steampunk spider. So two little There's snowfish. There's no way you just said that. There's no way you just said that because we have referenced that stupid steampunk spider really? from Wild Wild West like a thousand times on the show. And every single time we're like, I can't believe I'm mentioning this again, but the spider from Wild Wild West. So it's stuck in your brain as well. I don't know what it is. I can't remember the rest of the film, but I was like, yeah, yeah, giant steampunk spider. I don't know anything. I don't know anything about the rest of that movie except that there's a giant robot spider at the end and we can't stop talking about it we've talked about it like at least four or five times on the show well, there you go the snailfish like it too there's, there's a few species of chiroproctus that will just ride the back of a giant crab around the seabed because they're a squidgy little pink fish but hey i'm riding a giant crab what are you gonna do your uber has arrived yeah chunk 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 oh my my crab's here to pick me up <laughs> oh that's just my giant steampunk crab <laughs> do you not have that option if you scroll down far enough in the app, like it's all green and eco, but you know, right down the bottom, steampunk crab. You got to pay extra for that one though. Yeah. Yeah. It's a premium feature. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do like the idea of like, you know what? I understand my weaknesses. I'm not the strongest swimmer maybe, but that crab sir seems to be scooting around a lot. So maybe we'll just, <laughs> just plop our little babies down on there and let them figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. They're pretty smart. So we, we don't know how they're doing it in the trenches, but I have a feeling that they are, they're doing something interesting with reproduction because then they probably have direct development, which means that they hatch as baby versions of the adults because most fish would go up into the plankton and be distributed into new areas. But if you can only live in this trench, 
that's not going to work for you because the chances of landing back in the right place are pretty slim. You're just going to be back down in the trench again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I'm back. Great. So I think they stay down there and and our rough data seems to indicate that actually the smaller ones are deeper. Um, So where they're coming from down there. Oh, there's still so much to learn, but we're getting more cameras and eyes down there. We're seeing much more of their behavior. When you talked about how like once you adapt to living at these extreme depths, you really can't go back up. You can't get higher like you've you've already fallen far enough once you're in that trench you're kind of in the trench forever it reminds me of uh the legend of amigara fault that oh no by junji this is my trench it was made for me (laughs) (laughs) which i think i also just referenced in the episode we did a few weeks ago on the devil's hole pup fish oh which is also a little fish that like adapted in this one little hole in the ground to the point that it's its own species now because it's been this hole for too long i had a like emotional experience with the pup fish because i was reading some papers about them and it was talking about how they were critically endangered and then i looked and the paper was like from the 80s and i thought oh no oh no, do we still have pupfish? Do we still have pupfish? And then it was a massive relief. I was like, yes, we still have pupfish. They're hanging on by a thread, these little oh. guys. <laughs> but they're, yeah, they're no more extremophiles, hard as nails. But also like the Amigara fault, you go down, you can't go back up. I will always find some way to bring Junji Ito into it. Well, you don't read that and then just carry on with your life, not fundamentally changed I by it. <laughs> think about it every day. I think about it literally every day. <laughs> they do a cool deep sea story, actually. I can send you a link to it. Isn't there one? There's one where everyone's sharks, right? Something where like sharks come on land. I don't know. So, you know, we've kind of talked about the appearance of these fish being so, like you said, ethereal. It's right there in the name. Um, so I think I know where you're going to land on this, but our final category that we rate animals on is aesthetics. It's just how nice this animal is to look at. What do you give ethereal snailfish out of 10 for aesthetics? Is it me personally? Can I be horribly biased? Yes, it is you, your own gut feeling. Oh, yeah, if it's it's got to be a 10. It's got to be a 10. And just the way it blindsided us like that, the way we're sleep deprived, it's 3 a.m. It's meant to be a video of tubes. It was never meant to be this. It was meant to be a video of tubes. Yeah, it made an entrance. Should we, should we say that? It has a it has a, an element of theatrics to it. It knows how to make an entrance. Did you have a moment where you were like, I might be hallucinating. Like, I might be dreaming, actually. <laughs> <laughs> there was a processing error. Because again, it's 3 a.m. So there was we're just staring in silence at this screen. And this guy's just like, you like fish, right? Are you happy? What, what What's wrong? What, what's wrong? <laughs> he probably thought he was just like showing you some like cool little thing he found. And then everyone is like, this is completely upending our study as we know it. Yeah, we're, we're, like, oh. we're running down corridors and banging on doors. And it's like, get up, get up, get up. <laughs> <laughs> At that point, I'd be like, did I make a mistake? Yeah, like, I'd, I was going to delete it. It's in the way of my tubes. <laughs> <laughs> He's like shoving it to the side, like, get out of the way, you stupid fish. Get out of there. Let me look at my tubes of dirt. And we haven't mentioned that they have a really cute face. They do. They do. Can you do some visuals along with it? Any any sort of Hadal snailfish, they've all got these crunkly little, little pudgy looking faces. They've got that kind of pug, you know, not super attractive, but kind of, it, oh, it's weird, ugly, cute. It kind of works. The face is doing, for me, what axolotls do. Very axolotl-looking animals. If you're an axolotl fan, you're going to love this fish. Yeah, little eyes, but like facing outwards, so kind of adorably dumb-looking. And then, yeah, a big, gr- <laughs> a big grin of a mouth. Friend-shaped. Oh, friend-shaped. Oh. Now, what's happening with the little pits on its mouth? Ah, those are uh, sensory pores. So 
each of those little pits connect to a canal within the head. And they're, re they're really good at this. There's a, there's a canal that goes all sort of through the head and it picks up the vibrations. So we know from looking at their brains that the eyes are essentially pure, purely decorative. They're not doing very much. <laughs> For just, vibes. Yeah, yeah. Just so you know which end's the front. Uh, <laughs> so they're probably just bioluminescent detectors. They probably just know there's a little bit more light in this direction than this direction, but they're not making an image. Then it's taste and smell. So those long whiskery bits, and there's probably taste buds all around the mouth as well. And they are going to our bait, but they don't eat it. They know, they're one of the groups that I mentioned before, that they know that other scavengers will turn up and they can eat them. And then those pits are really sensitive to vibration in the water. And so as these little amphipods turn up, which are like little shrimpy things to eat the bait, uh, they just snuffle them up like jelly beans. Oh, I mean, that's a cute visual, even though I know in my heart. But they're meat flavored. <laughs> Slurping up amphipods is not as cute as it sounds. Yeah, I'm biased. I'm really trying to put a spin on it. <laughs> I, I do appreciate it, though, because that is it's doing a lot for me. Thinking of them as just like a cute little axolotl slurping up jelly beans on the bottom of the ocean. Like that works. That's great. There you go. That's it. That's a, that's the best way of summing up a hadal snailfish as ambassadors for the deep. Things are much cuter at the bottom of the ocean than people give them credit for. There's some cute stuff happening down there. They're just scary for a bit. And then you push on through the scary. Everything gets dumb and then it gets cute. It's like a reward. It is. Hey, you made it this far. Here's the reward. Have a, what is it, a little Dumbo octopus. Yeah, you see? And a pretty little snailfish. It's like a, it's your little bonus. You made it this far. Here you go. Now, for people who are listening are like, I'm obsessed. This is great. I have to hear more about all the goofy, silly, and exciting stuff that's going on at the bottom of the ocean. You have your own podcast, which for anyone listening, I'm sure anyone who likes the show is going to love your show. Could you let our friends listening know where they can go to find more of your voice? Okay. If I've not driven you away, if you want more of my wafflings. Well, they've made it this far in the episode. Like, yeah, I feel is, like... <laughs> this is the Dumbo Octopus. You've made it, you've made it deep enough and you, you found the promo. Uh, <laughs> So me and uh, and my mate, Alan Jameson, um, who I mentioned earlier, we started the Deep Sea podcast. It's been a couple of years now because we were getting annoyed by how the Deep Sea was kind of presented. Even our own research, we'd write a lovely press release about how cool these animals were, and then it would get turned into a horror show. And people who were interested didn't know where to go to get actual factual stuff. So we're having a bit of fun with it. We, we call it a punk take on a science podcast because we... We were a little bit silly. Uh, if we're too silly, we also do condensed versions that are just the science. But we're chatting with the most interesting people we know about some bits of the deep sea that you might not always know about. We should be the first thing you find if you search for the Deep Sea Podcast. And we'd love to have you over and, uh, and carry on being podcast friends with the zoo of us. Of course. And I'll have links to um, your show in the episode description. So anybody listening can just scroll through and um, click on through and head over to your podcast. Is there anywhere like on social media or anything like that that you want people to follow you on? I'm on Twitter and Instagram. I will continue to call it Twitter for now at least um, <laughs> as Tom Lindley. But uh, my Tom is spelt with a H. Um, but I can give you the links to those so we could stick them in the show notes as well if anyone wants to keep in touch. Perfect. All right. Yeah. Like I said, I'll have links to everything so people can scroll through and get more positive and wholesome deep sea content. It doesn't have to be all scary. We can have like a coquette moment in deep sea, like get your kawaii, <laughs> adorable Hello Kitty. I made this sort of reference when we were talking about the deep sea isopods, about how they kind of look like Hello Kitty Darth Vader. Wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I love the I love the pop culture references. I did I did not expect to talk about the steampunk spider. 
Well, Tom, thank you so much for your time and for your knowledge and for your passion. We've all had an awesome time. And I hope that anybody listening now not only like has an appreciation for the ethereal snailfish, but like sees the ethereal nature of the rest of the Hadle zone. It's not all spooky down there. So, you know, if we can see them for what they are as being charming in their own way and in their own proper context, then, you know, we can get more excited about learning about the deep sea. So it has been a delight. Thank you, Tom. We will talk to you later. Bye. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening, friends. I hope that the ethereal snailfish will forever gracefully glide through the deepest trenches of your heart. If you liked what you heard today, I hope you leave behind some kind words for us in a review on your podcast app of choice, like Amkel23, who said, This show is wonderfully put together. You can learn so much about animals and corresponding conservation efforts just by listening to this fun and funny show. Thank you, friend. I am so happy to hear that you enjoy learning along with us. If you want to hang out with us online, we're on Facebook, Instagram, Discord, and TikTok. Links to everything will be in the episode description. You can send me an email at ellen at justthezooofus.com if you have a cool animal you'd like to hear us talk about on the show. And I'd like to thank Maximum Fun for having us on their network alongside their other wonderful shows like the ones that you heard promos for here today. You can go check those out and learn more about the network and how you can be a part of supporting our show over at MaximumFun.org. Finally, we would like to thank Louis Zong for our theme music. That's all for today. We'll see you next week. Thanks. Bye. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.